0: Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group, recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. So this is a real treat. I am sitting across from Mr. Frank Martin, who is the co-founder and currently CEO of Martin Harris Construction, which you started in 1976 here in Las Vegas. Yes, sir. Vegas Inc. recently listed Martin Harris as the number one general contracting company with $422 million in billings and 402 employees, just to give a sense for... The size and the scale, that was for 2017.
1: They actually got that number a little bit wrong. We were $446 million in revenue.
0: I had a feeling you would correct that. <laughs> and uh, NAOP, which is the Association for the Development Community, has named Martin Harris the contractor of, of the year numerous times over the years. And you yourself have, have received the Chapter Lifetime Achievement Award, which is no uh, small feat. Yes, sir.
1: That was uh, That was a total surprise. That happened... I think about six or eight months after I had formed the partnership with Big D, and I got invited to go. My wife wasn't in town, and generally I don't go to those kind of functions without my wife. I usually don't go very many places without her. And my son and um, some people that I value at Martin Harris Construction said, come on dad, we gotta go. And, And so... I went with my son and his wife and a few other people, and then it got down to the, to the end of the deal, and I can't remember who the MC was, started talking about this individual. And I'm sitting there in my chair, and as he's talking and relating and whatnot, I literally, I am, am looking around the room trying to figure out who that person was that he was talking about. And he got, he went on and then things started sounding a little bit familiar. But until he said my name, I never really caught on to the fact that that was going to be me. You know, there was a lot of people in that room had been with NAIOP for a very, very long time. I felt like a dope. I got up and I'm going, really? (laughs) And, uh, but it was, that was a real special occasion there because they don't do that every year. Fact is, I think they've only given like two or three of those things out in the history of it. Yeah, they
0: don't do it because, oh, we have to give it out every year. So who will we pick? They only do it when they pick someone who actually deserves it. Yeah. And that's Thank interesting. You. You're sitting around looking to see who is this person that they're talking about. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I had a lot of things running through my head. You know, the, the, some of the, the big developers and uh, their own Malasky's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then when they talked to me and when they said my name, I'm going, hmm, how'd that happen? But it was a great honor. It really was a great honor. I truly enjoyed that one. I talk about that one as about as much as I do many of the awards that I've had.
0: So what a, what a cool story. Now you and I have known each other I think for about three years, and I've over those years I know you to be a man of Christ. I know you to be a family man, a horseman. I know that you can be extremely giving, and you also have a talent of being extremely candid which I respect very much. So that's Frank Martin, um, a little bit about you, a little intro. But let me uh, ask you, tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. So
1: I like to describe myself as an entrepreneur. I like to describe myself as, as you said, a, a man of Christ. There was a period of time when we first started Martin Harris Construction that we were extremely, what I would call in those days, fortunate because we got a lot of really high-profile clients and and projects that were all over um, in, in the days when we started. Maryland Parkway was the most heavily traveled street in the state of Nevada, and we had projects going up and down Maryland Parkway, and they were all because of a guy by the name of Irwin Mulaski. And... Um, I thought it was, we were, we were that good, we were really, really good at what we did, and, and I could sell anything to anybody. Um, it was only after I lost my first fortune that I understood that, um, and I, I, use the, I use the saying when I speak to new hires, that I, for a while I thought I was God's gift to the construction industry, and God really doesn't give you any gifts except salvation. After that, he expects you to do his share, your share. And so when I got to understand that, then it changed my perspective on many, many things. That what God gifted to me was a blessing, and so therefore, I needed, according to the Bible, to those who much have been given, much is expected. Well, much has been given to myself and my family, therefore, much is expected. And that's part of what drives me today um, in philanthropic endeavors, in my actions, my heart—I um, have always believed in being candid. Uh, I've always believed that, uh, although I've developed a little bit more of a filter to that now, I always believed that it was—if it was in my head, it was coming out of my mouth. My filter is is that I don't purposely try to hurt or Damage someone, but if I am thinking it, I'm generally saying it. My filter is that I just
0: tone it differently. I so, was there be, a time where you just let it fly and oh, didn't yeah. give a regard if you hurt or damaged somebody?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you got to understand, I am. I come from a oil field family. My dad was a farmer. He lost the farm in North Dakota, went into the oil field, and we boomed around the oil field. From uh, somewhere around 1954 or five until 1981 or 1961, when he moved here to Las Vegas,
0: and what is boomed around? Can you describe what boomed around means?
1: Well, oil fields are the people that follow the oil fields around are known as boomers. Okay, and and it, you and that's the way it used to be. I can't tell you what they are now, but. I got a feeling it's about the same thing, because a boom means that there's something really, really going on in a market or in a uh, geographical location, and so people flock there. Got it. And so my dad, uh, as a roughneck on the oil rigs, he would go from one hole to another to another to another to another. And um, in that world... You grew up really, really fast. I went to six different schools in my sixth grade because, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so you got to... That took a
0: second for it to resonate with me, what you just said. Yeah. Six different schools in in basically one calendar year of your sixth grade year. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Now, that, that was unique because it was in the sixth grade that I decided that I wanted to be a carpenter when I grew up. I got into my first wood shop in one of the towns in Wyoming or Colorado, wherever it was it was at, and I really liked working with my hands. And so that's kind of when I decided. But um, going to that many schools in two or three schools in a school year was not unusual at all. I mean it happened all the time. And what it did though is it taught me to make friends, understand people fast. That's the good side. The bad side is is that it taught me also to not grow really close to anybody because literally you would not get a chance to say goodbye. Mm. And uh, my dad was a, um, a rough man. Um, he would come home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to say we're leaving and we would have our little 5x7 trailer and station wagon packed up by 430
0: And most of the time we didn't know where we were going until we arrived. And that's the, when you said you don't have a chance to say goodbye, you don't have to, you don't get to go to school the next day, say goodbye to all your friends and then leave. Oh no. It's, we're out of here when it's time to go. And
1: of course there was no cell phone, so I couldn't pick up or text or (laughs) or send an email or any of those stuff, you know? Yeah, that's it. We were just gone. And there was a lot of people that I felt close to in the early days, you know, when you're in the third, fourth, fifth grade, um, you develop friendships because when you move into a new town, you're kind of the guy, you know, especially in little small towns and most of them are agricultural towns, farming towns where families had been long established and you're a guy that comes in and lives in a in a trailer parked on top of a hill. And so it's tough to get to know people and I, I learned how to get to know people quickly. I knew how to, I got... I didn't know what it was at that point in time, but I I, I learned how to read people's personalities. I got to know which kids that I could be friends with and which kids I really didn't want to be friends with. And that still serves me today. I can read a personality very quickly, um, can figure out how to get along or where to draw the line with them very quickly. And that helped me in business because I could see... What needed to be done, I could see beyond the person that was sitting there talking to me, talking to me about their project. I could see Mm -hmm. the completion as we talked about it. And so then, all of a sudden, I found myself joining side-by-side with them in going forward on their project. I was as much bought into their project as they were. And that uh, served us very, very well. Nothing misleading
0: about that
1: at all. It was a matter of simply understanding what your client's wishes was
0: so how in in that process where you have this ability to join up with somebody and take them through their vision to to a reality was candor being very candid either helpful or hurtful in some cases
1: so um that in in the early years uh, i developed an estimating system that before there was ever a computer i did it on long ledger paper and I would itemize out every aspect of a job, um, still somewhat what Martin Harris does today. And I would get um, openly hostile and confrontational with an architect if 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 I had a, 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 an estimate that said that there was 698 square feet of glass on the north elevation of the building, and all of a sudden it was 712 square feet of glass on the north elevation of the building. I would get very, very confrontational about that because in basically because they did it without asking permission. Mm. They just did it. And I would say, what entitles you to impact that man's return on investment? And I, got, I would get really confrontational. It was only later on that I learned from a guy by the name of Mark Fine. He said, Frank, you don't own it. What you're doing is providing information and me as the owner needs to say, I want to spend that money or I don't want to spend the money. And so that candor turned into confrontation mm. very, very easy. The other side is, is that when, um, and this has happened several times in my career, is that an owner has a, has a representative, somebody that works for them and it's, they're not doing them a good job. That candor with, with that owner um, created a relationship with an owner that couldn't be broken and still is not broken to this day. I mean, we've been in business now for 40, 42 years. Um, Erwin Mulaski is still a client. Right now today we're doing the new courthouse facility for him downtown. That kind of candor for that kind of a man mm. was irreplaceable because he was surrounded with a lot of yes people, and I wasn't always a yes, although he scared the crap out of me. Um, Irwin is, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure talking to him. I've he's not. Quite, he's quite old now, but um, I used to go to his office over on Maryland Parkway across the street from Sunrise Hospital, and when I was sitting in his lobby waiting to see him, I literally would be sweating like a little pig because I was scared to death to walk into that man's office. Why was he so scary? Um, the power that he exuded, the, um, power that he had, and, um, some of the people that he ran around with were pretty powerful people too. And so, um, You mean like mob type people? Uh, I wouldn't say. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll
0: read between the lines. Yeah, thank I'll you. I'll just infer whatever I want to, because I can do that. <laughs> then
1: you asked me how the candor, in the yeah. days when I was unkind, I would, um. With employees uh, i got I got told one time I said uh, you know one of my people come to me and and said, "Frank, we got a bunch of people walking around here on their knees, and I said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "Well, every time you deal with someone, the way you deal with them it's like you chopped them off at the knees and they're not they're not a man or a woman when they leave your office and um that uh, the guy that I worked for before I went into business, he was famous for doing that. And so I swore mm. when I went into business, I'd never treat somebody like that, but I ended up doing it anyway. Because when you have been in business for eight, nine years and you got 500 people working for you and you got people putting you in their plane and flying you here and staying in a penthouse, your head gets big. And so you start, you start forgetting what, what life is really about, what What happiness is really about, not caring how I impacted others as long as I got to the goal that I thought was so doggone important. And it took me until 1989 to understand those some of those goals that I was working so hard for and cutting so many people off and devaluing them totally. Um, it took me until 1989 maybe 1990 to understand what I was doing. And it wasn't anything maybe I was doing consciously, but I had, in some ways, a presence like Irwin did. Now, Irwin never raised his voice. I never raised my voice. I just don't believe in doing that. I don't believe in cussing. I don't cuss at people. Do I cuss about things? Yeah.
0: But I don't <laughs> believe
1: in cussing at people. To me, it devalues them. Mm-hmm. And I found out then that I didn't need to raise my voice. I didn't need to cut them off at the knees. I didn't need to do all of those things that so many people do today that devalues somebody, puts them in their place, if you will. That's a common term, was when I was growing up. Um, I could do it succinctly. I could do it as a gentleman. And as my mama put it, at one point in time, um, you can step on somebody's shoes and still leave the shine. But they know the shoe has been stepped on. And uh that's hugely important. That's probably one piece that most young young people don't don't know about these days.
0: I like that. You sounds don't have like to scuff be, the shoe. Sounds like it should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> um so we'll jump around quite a bit here and and I, wa- I want to do that. That's a great example uh, to lead into to this next question about how you have evolved over the years and refined yourself and learned lessons and then applied them. So you and I sat down. This is the third time that you and I are sitting down kind of one-on-one in a in a just conversation with each other. Uh, the second time I came to, to see your office, which we're sitting in now, and you toured me around and showed me uh, how you uh, – I don't want to say decorated, but appointed the office, and then we went to lunch. The first time you and I sat down, it was because I was being considered to join your tech group, which is now known as Vistage, and you gave me generously, not just your time, but also your uh, experience and stories over the years, specifically around tech and Vistage. Mm -hmm. So let's spend a few minutes and tell everyone what is Vistage, used to be called tech, uh, and what has it meant to you over the last... Thirty years, I believe you've been in. Oh,
1: I don't know. I just got an award. Yeah, you did. I think for twenty or twenty-five 20? years, okay. something like that. Yeah. Um, so you gotta you gotta kind of ratchet back just a little bit. I made the statement a little bit ago that you know I've been in business for eight nine years, had five hundred people working for me and and four hundred and fifty people, and um, from carpenters to truck drivers to drywallers, you name it. And I was a uh, Seminar junkie, if you will, because I graduated from high school, won several scholarships, never took them. I just went to work as a carpenter. Remember what I said mm-hmm. in the sixth grade? I decided. You already I knew. Wanted, yep. Um, my last two years in high school, I spent three hours a day in a vocational carpentry class. So uh, before I ever graduated, I went to the carpenters union and and filled out all the paperwork, got indentured as a as an apprentice carpenter, and. Um, uh, flash forward 12 years, I worked for 12 years for the same company, basically, from the time I graduated. September 7th, 1965, I got my first job as a carpenter for working for a company called Hardware and Specialties, which later became Architectural Components. Um, flash forward to March 31st, 1977, I quit Architectural Components to begin the first project for Martin Harris Construction, as Martin Harris Construction. So I had very little, um, experience, nothing that prepared me for the growth spurt that we were going on. Um, you know, everybody relates everything to revenue these days. Well, no, they always have, especially the construction industry and no business in general revenue. Nobody ever pays attention to the bottom line for some reason. Uh, I've always felt not always, but I felt like that was important. And so, um, In 1989, when I lost my first fortune, what happened was is that I grew from about, in 88, about um, $14, $15 million in revenue to $34 million in revenue in 1989, and um, had 500-plus people working for me. So what happened is I became a seminar junkie, trying to figure out how to manage that, Hmm. Um, if you can imagine this, I had 400 people and I was still filling out by hand birthday cards and anniversary cards to every single one of them. So if I had 400 people working for me, I filled out 800 cards in the course of a year because it was a birthday and Mm -hmm. an anniversary personalized. And if you walk around in the office for people who are here, then you'll still find some of those cards hanging on their wall. So where Tech came in, and it was Tech, it'll always be Tech for me. It's Vistage for young guys like and that you. that stands for
0: the Executive Committee. Committee.
1: Yep. Where Tech came in, I got recruited by a guy that used to be with Leventhal and Horweth. I think. He came to me and he said, um, there is this organization, and, and here's how it's structured, is that we have a meeting once a month, and it's all day long. And I said, oh, I can't possibly take a full day every month. He says, "Oh, it gets better. Then you got to spend two hours a month with me, just one-on-one, one-to-one. How am I going to spare that time?" Well, I I joined that. I joined. I joined it anyway because I was so thirsty for knowledge. And now, by this time, I'd already been in business probably twenty years. But the thirst, even right now, still doesn't leave for the knowledge, for something different, for something that not different, better better. There's a difference between just doing it differently or doing it better. But anyway, so for me, what happened is, is that it was a real revelation. I got to speak, I got to listen to these brilliant people come in and talk to us in the morning. And then I had a group of guys that I could sit around and, and, and work issues, whether it was about with my issues with my sons and our relationship early on, or it was uh, managing employees, or managing clients, or managing banking and bonding relationships. And the biggest thing that I had never experienced is I could do that in 100% confidence, with 100% confidence that it was all going to be 100%
0: confidential. I had never experienced that world before. So how can somebody listening to this who hasn't experienced it really... Um, appreciate why that's so valuable, why that was valuable for you then and continues to be valuable for you now. So, and this is specific yeah. to, I think it's easy to understand, you know, if you carve off once a month and you, you're, you're listening to a speaker of something relevant and meaningful around business or life, that's easy to understand because you can do that today. Uh, there's many forms for it. There's even YouTube or TED Talks or something like that. But then in the afternoon, to sit around a table with other folks who are like-kind, like-minded, and be able to say, here's an issue I'm having, and it ranges from, like you said, personal family relationships to, uh, you know, profitability issues in my business. Exactly. Why is that so powerful?
1: So most entrepreneurs, and this is an organization made for entrepreneurs and their support, their direct top-level support people. And, and we're talking about the officers, the vice presidents, and the chief operating officers, et cetera. Why that's so important is that you don't get many forums where you can go, can sit down with a group of very smart people, and the people you're talking to aren't thinking, sitting back and thinking, "Hmm, what's in this for me?" And how do I make my answer sound so good to Frank that I get a raise or I get a bonus or I get a job. Mm. The group of people you sit with, they don't care, Bipkis, except for your success. They don't care. There's nothing in it for them. So it's so candid and so confidential. Why is that different? I would submit to you you're going to have to be leading you're going to have to lead your own company for at least 5 to 10 years to understand why that's so different and what makes it special. The ideas that I came out of there with, the concepts that I came out of there with, um, you take a look around to come around our company now, around Martin Harris now. We do stuff that construction companies simply don't do.
0: What's an but, example?
1: Um for the most part when we started it was a scholarship program for our employees. That's one. We've made architects, we've made engineers, we've made accountants, we've made um, uh, people getting bachelor's degrees and master's degree and construction management and everything because I, got, I listened to somebody at some point in time. And so what would happen if your workforce, if you improve the people that's currently in your workforce rather than going looking for new talent? Because they think like you now, What would happen if they just had that other level? Um, Incentive programs, I developed my first incentive program around a tech program.
0: Compensation incentives?
1: Yes. Okay. um, Bonuses. Yeah, profit sharing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It worked for a while. I firmly believe that most all profit sharing programs are doomed to failure because um, human nature says that it becomes an entitlement. And I used to make the statement, and sometimes I even bragged about it. I created and disbanded six different profit-sharing programs within Martin Harris Construction because while we would pay our profit-sharing checks out in February and March, my accounting people would start getting phone calls in October wanting to know how much the check was so the people could go get a loan, Oh wow. borrow against it. At that point in time, it became... And, and, the the worst part was is that they didn't care whether the company was profitable or not. They didn't understand it was a profit-sharing mm-hmm. program. It was an entitlement, a check that they always got. They didn't realize, they, and probably it was partly my fault, they didn't realize it was because the company was making money that they could make money. But it became an entitlement, so then we would do away with it.
0: So that in and of itself, there's three Vistage wisdoms right there yeah. I got just from hearing from you and your experience. One is... Uh, if I, if I'm going to create a profit sharing program or a bonus program, be careful not to have it become an entitlement. Number two, if you try this as a business owner, it doesn't mean that it has to be forever. So I don't have to mentally lock into that because Hey, Frank has created and disbanded six over his, his lifetime and career. So that's, uh, and if, okay, if I'm going to do it, Hey Frank, Hey, can you show me? how to do this and you can say, well, what are you trying to accomplish and mm-hmm. look at profitability and and how to communicate it to the team about how this works and why it should work and how, what frame of mind they should even have around this.
1: So the profit sharing program we have today is, uh, works basically off projects and, and, uh, without going in too much of it, but I don't want to give it to Sean Donowski, but, uh, <laughs> or, you know, some of the other guys, but, um, People can calculate what their bonus is going to be during the course of a job. Then they know, so but then There's transparency. The job, huh, transparency. Wow. And, and the harder they try, the better they're compensated. And so there is a transparency. There is an understanding that their destiny is really in their hands. And there's an understanding of how the money is, is, is delivered to their hands. And they're in control of it 100%. I mean, we got a prescribed formula, all that kind of stuff. And that, pr- that plan was developed by our project managers, our project superintendents, and our, and our senior project executives. It was designed by them, not by me, not by my officers, but it was designed by the line people that it impacted. <laughs> and it touches every area of the company. It touches accounting. It touches our general superintendent.
0: It touches estimating.
1: It touches every area of the company.
0: I chuckled because of what you just said and and the counterintuitiveness to that, which is if I want to create a profit share, I would sit around as the company owner and try and think about that as opposed to what you just shared, which is why don't you go to the source of the people you want to incentivize and you want to affect their behaviors? How do they want to be incentivized and what's actually meaningful for them? So that's already uh, in the short conversation we've had, an interesting sample of your life from childhood to now- At Martin Harris, and I want to segue. This show is called Takeaways, and it's about the takeaways that I've learned from people who have influenced me, and you're certainly one of those people. Thank you. No, thank you. (laughs) But I want to jump off and ask, what one thing or event has influenced your life or shaped you the most?
1: So I'm 71 years old. I've had a lot of events. But I think the one that, um, or maybe two, I met a man by the name of J.A. Taberti before I ever went into business for myself. And he had a company called J. Taberti Construction Company. It was the very first ENR top 400 contractor from the state of Nevada to be recognized by engineering news record. J.A. and I become great friends. More importantly, he became a mentor for me. And so meeting him... When Frank Harris decided that we were going to go in business, um, I went to Jay and walked into his office. He was like me and in those days. He had, a, had an open door. And I walked into his office, and he had this big leather couch there. And um, I sat down, and he says, what's on your mind today? And I said, well, because I'd been working on all of his projects as a foreman for the company Architectural Components um, I told him, I said, well, uh, I have decided myself and Frank Harris has decided that we're going to go into business for ourselves and I'd like to be able to come to you and ask for advice and talk. And I don't need clients. I don't need work. I need your wisdom. And was that hard for you to ask that? No. No. You know, asking for help has always been the easiest thing in the world for me. And that's one of the things that really got reinforced to me in 1989. Um, When I was on the verge, I mean, I had lost everything I owned. In Old Valley Bank in Nevada, $855,000. And when I told them that I had no way to pay them, what they did is they offered me another (laughs) $150,000 in credit line. And so I've been touched by people like that all the time. But anyway, so then that was the, the, in the beginning, was the thing that shaped me. There was guys like Claudie Cook Construction. There was a guy by the name of Burt Ward with Sunrise Construction. I could go on. Of that group of people that I had formed a relationship with, that became mentors for me. So surrounding myself, that was the piece early on, surrounded myself with, with those quality people and, and the mentors that they became. Um, but then I think the other, the other thing that was the real bellwether for me, and I've talked about it a lot uh, so far, is the when I lost my first fortune in 1989. Um, what I understood at that point in time is I'd never wrote a business plan. Tech taught me part of that. I didn't know how to read a balance sheet at all. Hadn- I knew what the there was the components, and I always looked. At the top line said cash. On a P&L, I went to the bottom line and said profit. And when so it you're just- in business now for like 13 years or yeah, so? Yeah, 12, 13 years, and I didn't know how to do that stuff. And it just- I never wrote a business plan, never had a strategic plan, never had anything. In 1989, because of the sheer overwhelming piece of that, that I could lose everything I worked for for the last 12 years in one fell swoop. That was the thing that told me I had two choices at that point, either file bankruptcy or learn how to run a business. And I chose learning how to run a business. Once again, then what I did is surrounded myself with the right people. There's a guy around town. I don't know how often he comes up here anymore. His name's Terry Kramer. He used to work with Fails Management Institute, FMI now. Doc Fails, and he worked only on construction-related companies. And they come up, and he did an unbelievable job for me. In 1989, he came up and, and did a, a week-long management audit and, and sat down in my office and told me everything that was wrong, and this guy, had he nailed it on every point. We even videotaped that debrief, and I still look at the... I haven't looked at it in a few years now, but when I lost my other two fortunes, I would pull out that videotape and it was still relative the things he found. I was still doing, hmm. I would put 12 years, 13 years in between them. And then you start getting arrogant, like making up a business plan, setting it on a shelf and a year later you pull it down and you cough and choke because of the dust on it, you'd never pulled it down in 12 months, did that. And so that the 1989 thing was one thing that really turned me around. There was a couple other things too, having to do with joining AGC, Associated General Contractors, big deal for me, uh, and then of course when Tech came along, and about twenty years later, uh, that was that was huge. I had never in my life experienced so much wisdom and so much candor and so much willingness to just jump in and and help you get the job done. And then the other side that I had a really difficult time because of my childhood with leaving so quickly. And not having the ability to say goodbye is that when people started calling and checking on me to see how I was doing, I'm going, how the crap does that happen? I never, that's part of what gave me the heart today was that, that to call people and check and make sure, you know, we have a friend that's struggling right now and Mm. call them up and, and just a phone call. You don't have to say anything. You just listen. And, um... That was, that was the thing that, that I would get phone calls from some of these guys, and they didn't have anything to say. They weren't going to loan me money to get me out of my trouble. But they
0: you know shouldn't. that they're
1: there. But you know that they're there, exactly.
0: Go, let's go back to Jay Bertie for a second. Jay, yeah. What one takeaway from him do you still apply or find yourself saying or giving it's, as advice? So I formed my partnership with
1: Big D four years ago, four years ago, first of uh, November. And uh, technically, I was supposed to get retired, you know. And so all the way through my 42 years in business, all the way through my my experience, J.A. to Bertie one time, first or second visit after I decided that I was going to go into business for myself, J.A., as I was sitting there in his office, he said to me, he says, Frank, you fully understand that the construction business is one of the most competitive Brutal businesses you can be in. The profit margins are very low, and they really are, for the risk. The cost of entry is, um, is very low. Um, and so he kind of summed that all up. He, and he made a statement at one point that if you got a pickup truck, three two befores, five concrete stakes, and a Labrador retriever, basically you're a contractor. But the way he summed it up was is that he started out, the construction company is very, very brutal. It's a tough, competitive world because as a contractor and we'll get, in that, get to this a little bit more in detail in a minute provided you ask the right question. <laughs> um, so it's a tough, competitive world and low cost of entry therefore almost anybody can do it. And he said that's the bad news. The good news is It's only that way for the first 40 hours of every week. Because after that, 97% of your competitors go home. So the message was, if all you want to do is put into into it 40 hours, Mm -hmm. you can go home and suffer in that tough, competitive world. Mm -hmm. But if you choose to be that 3%, that doesn't go home at the end of eight hours. And for the first three years, I was in business four years. I was virtually at 24-7. I'd fall asleep on my plan table, wake up in the morning, and go back to work. And uniquely enough, and I didn't even put this together until just now, when I first got my contractor's license in 1976, numbers 13982. And in 76 through about 85 or so, 97% of the company's license numbers circulated almost on an annual basis. At the end, no, I'm sorry. At the end of three years, there was only 3% of the license number still valid because the other 97% had went out of business. Hmm. And I didn't put that together until They went time. home
0: after the 40-hour work. They week. went
1: to home after the 40-hour work. Yeah. Or the other side is, um, in the construction business, very few people will admit what their capacity is. They don't know how to say no. They always want to do the next job. I'm looking at a company now, and I like looking at companies, and in my position with, with my partnership with Big D, I get to look at companies, and, and I'm looking at a company, and this is an example of that, I'm looking at a company that's doing $20 million a year in business, and he makes a really, really nice profit. He just, and, and the broker that pitched the company to me, just called me up on Tuesday that over the weekend, and the, this guy did the $20 million on seven to nine projects a year, which means that, you know, maybe his jobs were $2 million, $3 million in size.
0: So these it's, are like bread and butter type jobs? Yeah, well,
1: but it, he, he, he's, he's in business in a very high-end market. Okay. And um, <laughs> they, the broker, the business broker, called me up, and they were so happy. This guy just signed a contract over the weekend for a
0: $30 million project. So so this one contract is more than this person does in a year. In an entire year. In an entire year. In an entire year. And they're pounding their chest. And pounding do, their rah, chest. Rah, rah, this yep. is
1: great. So what happens is that too much work kills more contractors than too little work. And because people don't know how to say no, mm-hmm. they won't say no.
0: We're experiencing that a lot right now in town with yes. not just general contractors, oh, but no, all no. forms of, all forms of, of service providers to yeah. this industry, Land, be let best landscaper in the world until you have too many jobs. And yep. now you're the worst and nobody wants to talk to you anymore. Exactly. And, and
1: unfortunately many entrepreneurs get caught up in that. Mm-hmm. It, it's a big ego trip for them. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I got,
0: it's also a false sense of security and, oh, I just signed a bigger job yep, and, a bigger and a bigger job, job and a bigger I've
1: job. And and so what they start doing is they start living off the cash flow, and then oh I'm a little bit short on payroll, so I won't pay my payroll taxes this week. I'll catch up mm-hmm. next week. Mm-hmm. Only thing is they don't. And so it's 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 really and, and that's that's what um, that's part of what tech helped me understand too is is staying away from that kind of a fallacy.
0: So you've touched on on a lot of things that we're going to go into deeper as far as you talked about your first fortune and then your other two fortunes that you lost. Uh, You mentioned Frank Harris. I'll I'll ask you about that more as well. Um, But before we get into all of that, what year did you move to Las Vegas again? 1961. 1961. And when you moved here, your first home was a motel for the first six months. Redwood
1: Motel out on Boulder Highway. Yes, sir.
0: So back then, what was it like around the dinner table in the Martin Martin home?
1: We didn't have a dinner table. Uh my dad worked out at the Nevada test site and he would he got recruited from California to come up here to start drilling holes for bombs instead of holes for oil. And so uh he parked my mom and my siblings, of which at that point in time there was three of there was four of us. So my mom and and four kids. Are you the a, oldest? I'm the oldest. Uh stayed in a motel, a redwood motel out on Boulder Highway. It's not there anymore. Um I don't. I don't. Can't remember that it was six months, but it was a good long time. Dad stayed at the test site, so he was only home two days a week, and there basically wasn't um, mom. Uh, the motel had a little kitchenette in it, and so we would sit around and we would have our pinto beans and our pancakes. Um, dinner was usually beans, and lunch was usually beans, and and uh, breakfast was pancakes with. Uh, Maple syrup, which consisted of a cup of sugar, a cup of water, and a half a teaspoon of uh, a flavoring called mapleine. <laughs> Ma- yeah, mapleine. And that's that was our that was our syrup
0: for our pancakes. And where did you move to after the motel?
1: We moved to a place called the b bar Trailer Park. Um, it was located at the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Pecos. Directly north of where our friend has the uh, Broadacres marketplace, right? Yeah. And uh, we lived there in an 8-foot by 32-foot trailer house. And then we got to be really, really in good shape because we moved into about a 10 by 54. (laughs) And um, from there, we went to a place called Trailer Estates, which is... In North Las Vegas, it's um, east of Nellis on Cary, and bounded by Cary and um, Lake Mead, and moved into an even bigger trailer home. And uh, my dad still worked at Tessa. I drove the Widowmaker every day. If he was working out at Area 12 or some of the more remote areas, then he would spend, the, spend a week there. But if he was just working at main camp, then he would come home every day. But he would drive the Widowmaker every day.
0: You you talked about how you became a carpenter, joined the union, Mm -hmm. got indentured. Uh, You talked a little bit about um, Frank Harris. And he said to you, he asked you a question one day, why don't we go into business for ourselves? When When you think back about that, where do you think you'd be now if you weren't overlooked for a general superintendent position and to have Frank come to you and say, we should just go into business for ourselves?
1: I don't know. That's a really good question. I could still be a superintendent someplace, I guess. I could still be a, a carpenter. I could still be a, you know, who knows? Uh, that, was, that was definitely a pivotal point because I had, the mindset was just right, the um, opportunity or the suggestion. Um, I was working at a senior center at Bonanza in Las Vegas, Boulevard North, sits on the southeast corner of Bonanza and Las Vegas Boulevard North. The Cambero brothers, Domingo and Arturo, was the architects on it. And um, I was up on a scaffold putting in acoustical ceilings, and he'd come walking in and set his can of Coke down on my scaffold. He says, hey, Spider. Is
0: that your nickname?
1: Yeah. Yeah. His nickname was Star. <laughs> and uh, he says, hey, Spider why don't we go to go into business for ourselves? I squatted down on a This It's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I says, hmm, what do you think that might look like? And exactly what I said. But um, So we talked about that a little bit and figured out how we were going to finance it, figured out um, it, it took a major because both of us were working for a subcontractor at that point in time. And that's all I'd ever done is work for a subcontractor. Frank had worked for Jay at I knew Frank as an apprentice. I was his journeyman that broke that broke him in. I picked him up every day at his house and took him to work, and dropped him off every day for three years. So we were close. We are best friends, and uh, we talked about it a little bit, and then we decided that we wanted to become a general contractor. And so once that decision was made, then I started studying. I took the tests. Um, the fact is, I was the QE for. Every contractor's license that Martin Harris Construction held—general uh, engineering, um, A license, a C three, a B, a C five—I was the qualified uh, guy on on all of them. And um, how would my life look? I don't. I don't know. Uh, I think I would have ended up going into business. I really do, because I always—I never ever just had one job. In other words, I didn't work that. 40-hour job Mm. that I had with architectural components. I had a compressor in the back of my truck and some pneumatic, dual-fast pneumatic nailing guns. And I would go lay and nail plywood after work and on the weekends. So I never really just had one job. I never really ever just put in the 40 hours. Um, Early in the days of being a carpenter, I would go frame houses uh, with a, a guy that I graduated from high school with. His name was Dick Causey. Uh, the Cosy brothers had a framing company, and I'd go frame houses uh, at night and on the weekends. Hmm. So I never just worked one job; I always had more. Is that
0: work one. ethic from your dad, or is that just how things were for you back then?
1: It's just the way things were. My dad, my dad was a hard worker. Um, never, ever, ever unemployed. Never unemployed. But I never got to see him. So I made the statement he was never unemployed, which meant that he was a hard worker and he was effective at what he did. And so, um, yeah, maybe I did get it from my dad, the fact that he was never home, never, never, uh, like I said, never unemployed. I I got married. When I got married on September 30th, 1966, I was unemployed for about four or five weeks. I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I mean, I was I was hmm. everywhere, and at that point in time, I'd been with the company, this Hardware and Specialties. I'd been with them for a year, or a little bit longer. You know, September September seventh, nineteen sixty-five to September thirtieth, nineteen sixty-six. I got laid off about two days before I got married. That was a depressive moment, but uh, uh, that was the only time I, I've only held two jobs in my life. I mean. I worked for that company, and then I worked for Martin Harris Construction. For yourself. Yeah.
0: You talked about getting married, so let's stay there for a second, then we'll go back to um, you guys squatting there on the scaffolding, you and and Frank Harris. Talk about Bonnie. You mentioned Uh, earlier you don't go to events uh, like NAOP, Spotlight Awards without her, or many other things. Yep. Um,
1: My wife, I met her when we were probably sophomores in high school.
0: High school sweethearts?
1: Yes, yes. Well, I think we started going together midway through our junior year of high school. She, um, bright, bright blonde hair, always wore it in a French roll. Um, and she would come to school. Uh, had, there was a, her boyfriend, her current boyfriend, his name was Don. at that point in time, would drop her off. He drove a 1955 Chevrolet, two-door hardtop. All jacked up, big slicks on the back. It was a bad, bad car. And she would, they would come roaring into the high school parking lot. And I just, and I'd met her through horses. I knew her at that point in time. I'd met her through horses because she's one heck of a horsewoman. And um, we decided that our parents or us, a bunch of us kids that rode horses together, decided. And at some point in time, she stopped going with dawn. But uh, we decided we were going to form a 4-H club. 4-H Club is an agricultural club. And the night of our first meeting, we all decided we were going to go for a ride. And uh, just go up, we lived over on the east side of town, and go up on the side of the mountain and look at the town. Because when you drove, in those days, when you drove up to um, Sunrise Mountain up there, uh, Las Vegas, this is in 1964, 1963, Las Vegas is this little bright 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 shining piece of light in the middle of the valley floor nowadays when you drive up there you're surrounded by town mm-hmm. up there and you look clear out to summerland clear up to red rock and whatnot and it's all lights well in those days it was just this little patch of light we drove up there but when we left her we met at her uh, mom and dad's house uh they had this big old house and uh, 13 rooms and whatnot and um uh, when we left there, she jumped in the car beside me. And in those days, all the cars had bench seats. She jumped in the car beside me and slid right over next to me. And then we had five or six other people in the car. And uh, just went out for a ride and got up to uh, Sunrise Mountain, uh, got out of the car, had some Coke, sat there and bullshitted and whatnot. And when it was time to go back home, she jumped in right next to me again. I said, hmm. So, um, I said, well, maybe I need to ask her out. And so I did. And our first date was um, I had to go meet her mom and her dad. Her dad was a painting contractor called Brian Painting. And her mom um, worked in a construction office and uh, also then handled the books for Brian Painting. And our first date was spent on the kitchen floor in her house with me and her and her mom and maybe somebody else, and we were playing Jax. Are you familiar with mm-hmm. what Jax is? I am, yep. Okay, wow. Um, and we played Jax. That was our first that date. That was the first date. That was the first date. At Not the movies. Not the movies. Nothing the else. The drive-in. Nope. Yeah. Wow. That was our first date. And after that, we started dating, and the horses were a common bond for us. And um, sometime, uh, probably... May, June, July, August, September, something like that of, of 1965, I asked her to marry me. I was 18. We both graduated from Rancho High School in 1965. And uh, she said yes, and we got married September 30th 1966. And uh, she is uh, absolutely my hero, absolutely the best friend I got. Um, when we go to dinner together, Chaim, we never have a dinner that's less than two and a half or three hours because we just enjoy being with each other. Um, She was the woman, the person that kept my family together. I have two fine young men that have married beautiful women and have got five grandkids. But she was the gal that kept our household together. She kept my sons under control. She built a ranch virtually by herself. Um, the place where I, that I call home now, mm-hmm. uh, took care of the cows, took care of the horses and all that time she allowed me to set about doing what I, my passion was. And that was building a company and I ended up building several companies and leaving a real mark on Las Vegas and, um, on the construction industry and, I would have never been able to do that had it not been for the strength of Bonnie Martin and the strength of her resolve, her personality and and support was just unending and undying. Did it get tough? Oh, heck yeah, it got really tough at times.
0: So let's talk about that, the tough times. You talked about three fortunes that you've lost. Right. What were the years? 1989 um
1: I we went into business in 1976. We started our first project in 1977. So 12 years later, we were doing a place of a project. Um, we had gotten invited to be um, one of the select contractors for Baron Hilton over at the Las Vegas Hilton. And um, we were one of only three. and it was Marnell Crao, or Mardian who became Perini and Martin Harris Construction, and we were this little startup compared to Martin Hill and everybody else, and Perini. And um, we got invited to go over there, and of course, we attacked it with a vengeance. And after we got pre-qualified, and we got our first job, and we attacked it like a vengeance, the construction manager for Baron Hilton came to me and said, we want to remodel the room tower's. And we've been working at the Las Vegas Hilton about 90 days, and all of a sudden we had carpenters and laborers and drywallers going. The the All hotels are basically, except the wind, is formed on a Y with the elevator core in the center. So we would take one leg of the Y and go from go from the top to the bottom and remodeling the room. So mm. we were just going crazy. I mean, it was crazy times. In those days... Hotel casinos spared no expense when it came to construction. Everything was done on, on maximum cruise, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Paid in the, cash
0: with an envelope at the cage? No, 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 no. Uh,
1: oh, that was a different uh, one. one. Yeah,
0: a different one. <laughs> okay.
1: We had one of those one time, too, but it wasn't at a cage. But anyway, um, uh, then I got invited to bid on the O'Shea's Hotel. Now, the biggest job we'd ever done, uh, contract-wise was building Green Valley Athletic Club out on, on Sunset, and it was about $7.2 million. And uh, we got invited to bid on the Associates Casino Project, and um, our bid, I don't know, was like uh, $14.7 million or something like that.
0: So similar to the story you just told about the contractor today where they're yeah. doing That's, $20 million a year, and now they're, they just yeah. signed one contract at thirty. Yeah. So um,
1: uh, we signed the contract, got it built, but, and that was, early, that was late 1988. We turned it over in 1989. I had a group. I belonged to a peer group at that point in time. It wasn't like tech, but it was a group of other contractors. They came in and did an examination, and I was, I mean, I just finished up this big, huge casino, and I was buying them drinks and whatnot, and part of the peer group's deal is they review financial statements. And I already told you how I, mm. how much of a lack of understanding of financial statements I had. And um, they come in, they bring in several other people, they go out and look at our jobs, and they look, and, and the principals uh, look at your financials and talk to your people in your office. And so at the end of three days, then they do a do a debrief with me in the room, and that's when they told me that I had two choices: one is I could file bankruptcy, or two I could call fails. And so I called fails. But um, what happened is it just took on too much. Absolutely. It took on a kind of work. O'Shea's was a cast-in-place concrete structure. We did concrete work, but we did warehouses. Mm. When you start doing parking structures, they're six or seven stories high. O'Shea's had a basement underneath it and water running through it and whatnot. And just a lot of stuff we never anticipated. Didn't even know how to run it. And um, definitely let it overload me. And so I ended up dumping everything I'd made for the previous 12 years. Plus, as I said before, I owed Valley Bank of Nevada 855000 So in that case, I got killed by too much work. Not knowing when to say no. Mm-hmm. Not knowing my own limitations. The second fortune was in 2000, about 12 years later. Kind of odd how that works, right? <laughs> in 1990, our fiscal year ran from... Um, one October is to 30 September. And uh, by 30 September, that's when I owed all of, all the money and all that kind of stuff. By March, by 31 March 1990, six months later, I paid Valley Bank of Nevada off the 855000 But what I did after fails got done with me is I went home and I wrote my very first business plan. And we executed it. I projected $18 million in revenue. We did 27 I projected $300,000 in profit. And we did $3 million. Sandbagger. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, um, because as I was reading all these documents on how to write a plan, you gotta, you got to write the plan so people believe in mm-hmm. it. And uh, it does no good to do this stuff that, you, that is your plan. Now, I wrote the business plan, but the strategy behind the business plan, I depended on my people to help me fill in the blanks. And so it was awesome. And uh, then about 12 years later in 2000, we had been planning every year. We planned to to bust $100 million. And we planned for five years to break $100 million in revenue. Finally, we did. In uh, 1995, I believe, 1995, 1996, 1996, we had $124 million. We blew through the $100 million mark and didn't even pay attention to it. We were... Making money and having fun—that's my son's favorite saying. Um, 1997 went up to like 140 million. 1998 we went up to 189 million. 1999 we were just short of 200 million, and 2000 came along. And um uh, uh, we had been planning to branch out, and one of the places we wanted to go was to Irvine, California. Don't ask me why. It just sounded good. It's nice there. Yeah, it's nice there. Good weather. And we had a lot of architects that were up here working that just said, yeah, calm down. We'll give you all, you know, we'll we'll introduce your clients and whatnot. So we had a plan on how we were going to invade California. You remember what I said a little bit ago about having a business plan? Yes. The dust? Mm-hmm. We got really, really arrogant in 1999, 1998, and 1999 because we could do no wrong. Mm-hmm. We were making so much money, it was unreal. And, um... I started looking around for a new campus to put the company on, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, I sent a young man down to uh, Irvine. We spent $900,000 down there and generated exactly zero in revenue. $900,000. And started taking on contracts we shouldn't have taken on. We started taking risks with subcontractors. We had one job just... West of us here sitting here on Cheyenne, we lost 18 subcontractors on one job, and we guaranteed the job, so we had to finish it. Hmm. We
0: had four schools from Hades. And um, so how do you go from revenue going from 100 I think you said, four million to 200 million in that three-year period to yeah. it seems like the wheels just fell off, not they just did. of the expansion into California, but even here Everything. too.
1: So what I, and I like, and I should have made this statement before, it's like building a 20-story building on a five-story foundation. You can keep building and building and building, and it'll probably support it at 10, at mm-hmm. 10 stories. But you start getting up to 12, 14, 15, 18 stories, and the wheels just fall off. The foundation crumbles, and then it all, it's like one big implosion. And that's what happened. Hmm. I bought uh, the campus where Martin Harris is now on Highland, uh, on South Highland, in early 2000 when I thought I was wealthy and um, uh, had JMA draw up an interior plan, went to work on it. My wife and I promptly then left for France for three weeks. We left um, mid-June, came back July, and construction was well underway. The end of July, all of a sudden, things didn't look too good. And when I left in mid-June, we had made, for the first six months of the year, on paper anyway two and a half million dollars by the time december 31st rolled around we'd lost five yikes yeah that's second fortune at one point in time my cfo uh came to me and he laid a piece of paper on my desk and i don't even remember what the paper looked like but i remember never forget what he said he says i got enough cash to keep you alive for 30 days after that you're gonna have to figure out what you're gonna do with all these people hmm and we were in our we moved into our new building uh, on December 11th 2000 i hated that building i,
0: I hated it you building. resented it
1: i resent, i didn't deserve it i had ah. been so stupid i lost everything i was had made i'd been so stupid how could i do that and i didn't deserve the building and again my wife came to my rescue um but I was going in every day at 3 o'clock. I'd get up at 1 o'clock in the morning, be in the office at 3 o'clock in the morning, be working, plan, working, plan, working, working, working. And my wife, I, you know, in one of our talks, uh, we would just finished up going to church at Canyon Ridge, I think it was. And, and my wife says to me, she says, you know, um, let's go bless that property. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we're going to take some olive oil, bless the olive oil, and then we're going to walk to every corner on the property and we're going to walk to every corner on the buildings. And we're going to anoint it and we're going to pray that the forces... she
0: movement. knew that you resented the building? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I had a brand wow. new truck and horse trailer I paid $180,000 for. I couldn't stand to get in to drive because I felt so inadequate or not deserving. But anyway... What happened is, is that we blessed that building and prayed over that building, those buildings, because there's three buildings there and nine acres of ground. And it was like overnight, the forces of evil left that property. I couldn't wait to get there in the morning. And more importantly, our clients couldn't wait to throw projects at us.
0: Just like that? Just like that.
1: And we had... Go Bonnie. When this... Yeah. That's why I say... um, we had, we had a, a job building a school. And the school was making money, but it didn't have any sewer line. And the sewer line was long, and it was deep, and it was, so, it was such a big job they couldn't give it to us in a change order. So we had to competitively bid it. It was about $700,000 or so, $800,000. And um, we did that, and we bid it against three other contractors. We got it. We performed the work. We were able to get it in the sewer line. If you can imagine this, sewer line is over 20 feet deep in Kalichi. <laughs> My son, Jared, went out and find a, found a trench or someplace, Texas or someplace, that could cut that trench.
0: And you have to bring it here?
1: Yep. But we did the job in 30 days, and we made over $400,000 on a $700,000 job. And we got paid 30 days later. Wow. Bingo. One shot. That never happens to a contractor, but it happened to Martin Harris. And um, things, things just kept happening that way, kept happening that way. Until and you
0: lost your third fortune. That was, was that second the second. Re- was that the recession? No. So the 2000 was the second one.
1: Yep. And 2010 was the third one. Because of the Great Recession? And because of, Partly because of the recession. The recession uh, hurt Frank and Bonnie worse than it hurt Martin Harris' construction. What happened is we took a job on in 2010, I think it was, um, 8-10-10, at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. Well, um, when we bid the job, Mm. we got it for $42 million. It should have really been $55 million. And uh, did you know in Lackland it it can rain six inches in two hours? I did not know that. And we didn't either. So you can imagine a bunch of desert rats where it never rains trying to handle six inches of rain in two hours. It was a
0: disaster. So that, that's interesting that it wasn't the Great Recession. No. It was a job. Yeah. That, a job. A job. A job. And was this also an example of you took on something that you shouldn't have taken on? No. Every, all the components in
1: there were absolutely everything we had built before. Although we lost a really, really large sum of money, we were bleeding for the last eight months of that job. We were bleeding a million dollars more, almost $1.5 million a month on the job. There was some extenuating circumstances that the Army Corps of Engineers ended up having to pay us for. We took them to um, file the claim, and we won. We, but we didn't win for about three and a half years. And, uh, if we had not had a really strong financial base, I never, Bonnie and I live a fairly simple life, lived a fairly simple life. And so we left, we always had money in the bank Mm -hmm. and money in the company and whatnot. And so that enabled us, but we lost, um, well over $10 million on that
0: one job, on that one (laughs) job. I know that uh, during the Great Recession, or in that period, Martin Harris at one point was 1,000 employees, Yes, sir. and then within a six-month period, you were down to 200 employees.
1: No, it actually took us almost nine months to get down to around 250
0: employees. So from 1,000 to 250 in a nine-month period. In a nine-month period,
1: month period of time. So yes, how sir. do
0: you lead through something like that?
1: Um, you know, that I get asked that question, and... And I think the simple answer is, is, at some point in time, the instincts just lead. It was it was it was depressing to be around our office. It was depressing to be here. Um, we were having to lay off people by the dozens, and and one of the ways that we it helped us is that we kept track of our top performers, told them they'd be you know first to call back when it recovered and whatnot, and. Um, that was the good news. The bad news is that most of them left the construction industry, period, and never mm-hmm. came back. But how do you manage through that? It is so difficult and so time-consuming, all-consuming. But I'll tell you the one thing that I learned that took me through every one of those circumstances. Not only was the faith in Christ yet, but also the communication. Remember in 1989, I said I brought in fails management. Mm-hmm. Well, we had to lay off a lot of people. Terry gave me a 30-day work plan that I completed in seven calendar days. And that included terminating a lot of people, including the very first employee we'd ever hired. And Frank Harris's wife. Wow. And um, then he said, that's bad enough, but you're going to lose 25% of the people you've decided you wanted to keep. And I said, ah, it's not going to happen to me. And what I did is I had a meeting every day in my office. And I talked with them and I communicated with them. I didn't hide in a hole. I was right there in their face in front of them every day. And I may be that afternoon talking to a group of people that had five people in that group of people. I knew I was going to have to terminate the next day. Mm. So through every one of those crises, I never, ever stopped communicating with people. You've never been to my office on Highland. The way that office is designed, I got 10-foot concrete walls in front of it, and there is a private courtyard, what was right outside of my office, now outside of Guy's. And I would always park in there because I worked early and worked late. And during that period of time, I parked in the back parking lot with everybody else. So I always seen people coming and going because by parking in the back Mm -hmm. parking lot, I had to walk the halls of Martin Harris, didn't I? and you continue to communicate, when all else fails, no matter how bad it is, when you continue to communicate and continue to talk to people, regardless of whether it's going to be bad news from the next day, at least you've done it with honor and you've honored them while you're delivering the bad news, right? And that's how you do it. When you manage through it, you got to communicate when you're managing through you, a crisis.
0: You said earlier about communicating with your lender, just laying it out. Yep. I owe you $855,000. I have no yep. way to pay you back. Yep, And they said, great.
1: Here's, Here's some a, money to get
0: yourself out yep. of the hole.
1: Now, there's a backstory to that too. There was a guy by the name of, there was a company here in town called Sierra Construction. Um, Kitty Rodman, Jerry Kerwitz, and Gus Rapone. Gus Rapone sit on the board for Valley Bank of Nevada. And what I didn't know until years later, I ran into Gus Rapone at the building department. That's when I found out they sat on the board of directors of Hmm. Valley Bank of Nevada, my banker. And Gus Rapone sat in in, in the meetings when I applied for my first credit line and all the other times. And he made the statement to the board, whatever Frank Martin wants, we need to give him because this guy is going to do something different in Las Vegas. And it was that silent guy working back there that mm-hmm. I didn't know about for 10 or 15 years that fostered and mentored my relationship with Valley Bank of Nevada.
0: But that was your work ethic and your reputation that gave him the belief to not just say that, but exactly. to, to advocate for you behind yeah. the scenes.
1: So communication with the people, even though, like I said, you're going to have to deliver bad news to some of them the next day. And we delivered a lot of bad news in a very short period of time to a lot of people. But as long as you stay visible and you stay transparent and you stay honorable with them and you always treat them with honor and respect, it's horrible. Yeah. But you know
0: what? But you're choosing to do it with dignity. Exactly. And integrity. And integrity. So let's shift into the takeaways. We've talked a lot. um, And if anyone's listening to this, hasn't learned anything, it's on them, not, not this conversation. Because I've learned so much more than I've known, even just knowing a lot of this background, but one specific thing you said that I want you to elaborate on, mm-hmm. get work, do work, keep score.
1: Mm-hmm. So I can't tell you that I'm the originator of that principle, but probably I am. Uh, when I was a, a farmer's kid in North Dakota, um, and you, know, you all heard the stories, yeah, I walked you know, five miles and Waste deep snow one way to school and all that kind of stuff. Well, my, my dad was a farmer, and so I would get up, even when I was 5 or 6 years old, and I would help him do a couple of chores in the morning before I walked half a mile to get on a bus. Like milk-the-cow type chores? Exactly, and one of them was we had cows that we fed in a feedlot, and so we didn't have a grain truck. What we had was 50 or 60 5-gallon buckets that we would go into the granary, fill up with grain, and load them on the back of a truck and drive down the freed bunk and dump them off. And mm-hmm. Dad would drive the truck, and I'd dump the, I'd dump the feed, and then we'd go milk cows. we milk six or eight cows. And uh, my hands weren't big enough to do the milking, but I was there. And every milker, be this is the day be- days before automatic milkers, and were just the two hands, every, mel- every person that milked a cow sat on a three-legged stool. And the reason you sat on a three-legged stool is that if the cow kicked or moved around or got, sometimes it got nasty, sometimes you pinched him, the stool would get out of your way. A four-legged stool, you could tangle your legs up Mm. And so, but without one of those legs, the stool would simply fall over, right? Mm -hmm. A four-legged stool can stand without one leg, Mm -hmm. but a three-legged stool cannot stand unless all three legs are strong and even. So when I took a look, and I can't even tell you when it was, when I took a look at the business model, and the idea of that three-legged milk stool came into my head, Um, and those three legs are get work, do work, keep score. Getting work is sales, estimating, business development, all of that stuff up front. That's a critical piece, and that's the way And it's, it's done in a specific order. Get work, do work, keep score. That get work piece, when, when the recession hit and we were laying off tons of people, we totally restructured a company a full year and a half before anybody else did to head into the federal market. So while we were laying off tons of people out in the field and other aspects of the company, we were hiring 11 or 12 people in our business development department. That specialized in federal work, because that was the mm-hmm. market that wasn't going away, of course, until President Obama got elected, but that I'm not was, touching that one for no, I'm not touching <laughs> it I just had to stay there I know anyway, but long and the short of it was is that we expanded our business development and every and, and people in town are going, what the what are you thinking mm-hmm. you're hiring well, yeah, you guys let go of a lot of really good people, and you're taking them, yeah, because for most entrepreneurs, they look at the guys doing the marketing as strictly overhead. I look at them as my blood supply. Mm-hmm. That's the oxygen you pump into your nostrils. So the the concept goes: get work, do work, keep score. Unless you got an effective get work marketplace, my son's going to crap when I say the 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 do work and the keep score guys got nothing to do. Right? That's they're right. Un, they're unemployed, and and so. Um, that's why we have always rolled the keep score in the, and the do work people into that get work side, because these guys become unemployed. They don't want to become unemployed. I don't want to be, mm-hmm. the do work is where the revenue is generated, but where it's found yeah. is in the get work side.
0: So we have in our industry, a similar thing called find, win, fulfill. Mm-hmm. But when I thought, and I would always say that. That's, I distilled commercial real estate sales to find, win, fulfill. The difference between that and what you talk about, though, is the keep score part. There's uh-huh. so much emphasis on the keep score part, which yep. when, you, when you first said that, it sort of changed the way I look at find, win, fulfill completely.
1: Yeah. So the very first person we hired was an accountant.
0: For Martin Harris. For Martin Harris.
1: So you're the get work. I was the get work. Frank Harris was the do work. She was the keep score.
0: Last time you and I sat down, you made me think a lot about this concept of success versus significance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah. let's let's talk a little bit about that. You've um, shared a lot of your success stories and how you, you alluded to uh, clients were flying you on the private jet, putting you up at the penthouse. You take the limousine from the airport to the job, uh, chasing success. Mm-hmm. Did you switch to chasing significance? Um, that's a really good question. I can't
1: tell you that it was a physical reaching up and flipping a switch. I think where the, the success uh, came, and it's come to a lot of us in Las Vegas. You're an example of that. I mean, everybody in our tech group is an example of that. And there's dozens and hundreds of other people in Las Vegas. It's in a, it's a, it's a, and it's an environment that makes success. But when I took a look around, uh, and I can't even tell you how long ago it was, when I took a look around and I talked to people and I watched what they did with their lives, and for me, the difference between success, which comes and goes all the time, I told you three times when it came and went Mm -hmm. for me, and I know Dozens of people in this town that the same thing. I can't tell you it came and went three times. So maybe they were a little smarter and only, it only came and went once. But I can tell you that there's many people in this town that, that have went from successful to unsuccessful back to successful again. The people that make a difference, that keep that, that it doesn't make any difference whether they're successful or not are the people that I would say achieve significance and significance can be defined in a
0: couple of terms Um, how have you impacted the people around you so different than success which is almost how am I improving myself significance is a shift to how am I improving others well said exactly
1: and when you make that shift from success to significant and you can walk into a building and or walk into a restaurant, or you can walk someplace, and this happens to me a lot. Um, men come up to me, wives come up to me, and at some point, I have impacted their lives to the point where they're a different person now. that's significance
0: that's that's a reason why Martin Harris type company would have a scholarship program exactly because you're impacting the people to
1: to be better. And it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's not, you know, you can go out and buy a Maserati, you can buy anything you want. Okay. But what have you really done other than satisfied your ego? When you build people and you elevate people to a place, not unlike what Jesus Christ did, you elevate people to a place that they know you care genuinely care, not because it's the thing to do, not because it's politically correct or anything else, but you genuinely care. The other side of significance that um, I've gotten to experience a little bit since forming a partnership with Big D and moving out of Martin Harris's office and moving out of that world, kind of, is, is the impact that you leave behind if you call it a legacy i think it is a legacy the impact that you leave behind you know i'll every now and then i'll respond to a, an email at martin harris um, somebody sends out an email to all you know mm-hmm. i'll respond back mm-hmm. just for the heck of it and i'll get six eight or ten emails maybe more we miss you come back and see us I miss our talks when you can impact. And I've been out of Martin Harris's office this year. It'll be two years now. And when you can leave that kind of a legacy and leave that kind of a mark on people, Uh, I was telling somebody the other day, there is a huge number of people in this town that are leading construction companies and leading architectural firms that we've had a piece in making them a better person, making them making them see what the difference in their life, the difference between mm. being successful, because success is fleeting. Significance is not. Significance is always there.
0: that makes sense? Absolutely. Significance is the lasting. Um, I'm going to be selfish and ask you one more question, even though okay. I know we, have, we both have to go, and you have a, some matters to get to. The company motto for Martin Harris is discover excellence. Ah. What does it mean to be excellent?
1: First of all, excellence is only perceived by the person you're delivering a service to. And so, um, what I understood a long time ago, and actually one of our concrete finishers helped me understand that, is, is that the, in, in the general contracting world, what we sell is basically a commodity. And that commodity is concrete, it's sticks and, I call it sticks and stones, okay? Mm-hmm. Stones make concrete. Stones make drywall. Sticks make the wood framing. The forms for the concrete. It's sticks and stones. It's a commodity. Um, the concrete finisher can probably call up the ready mix company and buy concrete for five dollars a yard, within five dollars a yard. What I can buy it for, even though we buy a million dollars worth of concrete a month, he can still buy it because mm-hmm. there's a certain cost that is just there. And and so what defines the difference is the way that you deliver it. And that's all done in the people. And that um, that the training and the education of those people is focused on delivering the same product that everybody else can deliver, but delivered in a different way. We had a client, his name is Hoot Jones, Ralph Jones Display. We can go buy Christmas decorations and everything. They're down on Charleston. And... Um, they sent me this crane, really, and we, they had an extremely difficult job with a lot. The building was 50 years old, a lot of hidden stuff in it, and it should have been a disaster for almost anybody else. But the, the crane that they sent me on the lattice work of the crane, I don't like that right there, mm-hmm. it said in uh, three words, we discovered excellence. That isn't where the term came from. The term really came from a guy by the name of Ray Neumiller who designed the design that's on our trucks. We did a contest many, many years ago for a, a new paint job on our trucks. And he pinned that across there. And that became a subject matter uh, discussion in our next strategic planning. What does excellence look like? Well, the excellence isn't through our eyes. It's through the customer's eyes. And so we have to put ourselves in that customer's seat hmm. And let them help us define what excellence means to them. Because everybody has a different standard of excellence. Until we understand what, if I'm working for you, what your standard of excellence is, we're not going to deliver it. I can do everything I think I'm doing that I've been trained to do, but there's something in that process. This if is I back to
0: the Mark Fine example where he's telling you, it's not your building. Just give me the information that you know and let me make yep. the decision. That was his standard yep. of excellence, different than your yep. standard.
1: And, and so what it, what it also, though, is that you have to guard jealously what their standards are and not allow yourself to slip. That, that is excellence in your own mind. Mm. It's a perception of the client that we, we've got your back. And that our deal is when we get a client comes in and wants to build a building, if they're building widgets and they want to build a building to build the widgets in, we got to be good enough that they feel confident enough to go back to building their widgets and not worry about the building, just leave it up
0: to us. That's delivering excellence. It's a great note to end on. Frank has been a privilege. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. I go in with takeaways. I come out with many more in this conversation. You emphasized uh, the importance of work ethic, uh, thirst for learning, having a resolve to, to have a plan and to work the plan. Uh, Communication is King. And, significance is lasting.
1: It's lasting. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate
0: it. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. We'd love to hear your takeaways from this episode. Make sure to leave us a comment, leave us a review. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.